Might not feel like it, but it's an auspicious day. <laughs> as, uh, as I told the story, when Tanissa and I were in, uh, soon after we'd left the monastery, we were in uh, Dublin Herald's Cross. On the morning we were setting off to go to the West Country, uh, to a little village called Lechamahara near the sacred mountain Croke Patrick, we said to our neighbor, Liam, we said, good morning. And he said, any morning you're not dead is a good morning. And uh, uh, right after that is where we had that, uh, two minutes later there was the, the fire, the screaming, and the person, or oh, a few seconds later, the person that was uh, trapped in the burning house. And it later turned out that was the day that Ajahn Chah died. That was when Ajahn Chah died who was always encouraging us to, to reflect on the perils of samsara. Uh, there's a lot of potential for suffering here. Uh, and so to, to allow urgency to be a help, sense of urgency to help us, help us uh, find the energy to contemplate to understand this samsara, to understand this suffering. I say it's an auspicious day because we are alive and we do have an opportunity to practice and also this rain is auspicious. We might feel that, oh gosh, it's wet and aching. I can see that reaction. My goodness, isn't that enough? It's been all night and all day and all night. But just as Ajahn Chah would say, are we going to believe? Do we really get caught in these perceptions? Oh, this is not good. He would always say, my nah, not certain. We, we sh should be careful about believing these marks that our mind makes. Just a few miles from here in different directions, we have farmers that are clapping their hands in relief. We, you might have noticed the woman, the draftswoman that was here the other day drawing up all our buildings that we have to, by law, have all these uh, detailed plans. She lives on a farm. Uh, her and her husband are farmers. They have a, I think it's a dairy farm. They've been desperate, absolutely desperate, because the water levels are so low, you wouldn't think it because of all the mist and stuff we've had. But in terms of what the water should be, this is the time of year we're supposed to have torrential rains, big storms, and then it clears up, but big storms. And the water levels are very, have been very, very low. So that they're irrigating. They've been irrigating in the summertime. You're not supposed to irrigate till it's been months of dry season, months from now. So they've been really worried, so they're thrilled along with all the other farmers, along with the poor valley, the impoverished uh, valley where we want to start our Kapuka project. They were uh, saying, we've had no rain. We need rain. So just to, to look at our mind when it gets caught in something, uh, making these marks, it's bad, it's good, it is what it is. It's also an auspicious day because we're, we're uh, opening the door to a very important uh, aspect, the most profound, in a way, aspect of the, uh, of the Buddhist teachings. 
that which liberates. Liberates. We're, we're uh, beginning a, a five-day Chan session. Um, Chan comes, uh, is a Chinese word uh, from the, that's related to the Sanskrit word dhyana, which is related to the Pali word jhana. It's, it's, a, it's about samadhi, it's about meditation. A five-day meditation session that's going to be focusing on prajnaparamita, on this uh, virtue, this universal virtue of wisdom, that which liberates. It's said that Prajnaparamita is the mother of the Buddhas because you don't become Buddha, you don't become liberated without going through the gate of wisdom. The particular samadhi that we'll be looking at and practicing these five days is uh, the Buddha called the king of samadhis. He called it the Sharangama Samadhi, which means ultimately durable. It's, it's the unshakable samadhi. This teaching comes from the Sarangama Sutra, a very important uh, Mahayana teaching about samadhi. As we'll see, as, I, as we go on, we'll see that the seeds of this are in the Theravada. It's not that it's, it's foreign. But just to, to uh, give a sense of where this teaching has come from, I'll, I'll lay the, uh, tell the story. The, uh, the Buddha was at a meal offering in, uh, outside his monastery in the Jetta Grove. He, so he, someone was offering him a meal and he was uh, receiving the meal and usually at the end of the meal he get, gave a Dhamma discourse and then he'd return to the monastery. So the people who offered the meal always looked forward to the Dhamma discourse that was given right after they had given uh, their food offering. But while the uh, Buddha and his assembly were receiving this offering, the Buddha could see with his uh, divine eye that his attendant, who didn't come to the meal offering, his attendant, Ananda, was, had received some sort of invitation and was on the way home, being quite mindful and composed. And he was uh, uh, trying to follow the Buddha's instructions of not just going, he was going alms round, so he wasn't receiving a meal from a particular place. He was on the alms round that morning. And he couldn't come for this special meal offering that the Buddha was at. And so that he could follow the Buddha's instructions not just to go to rich people's house so he could maybe get good food, or even the other extreme, there were some monks that only wanted to go to the poorest, poorest, poorest people's houses because they thought it was wrong to get good food. And the Buddha said, both of those are extreme. You should allow yourself to be open and just receive what is, if it's good, I'm happy with that. If it's not so good, happy with that. Learn to let your mind not be so caught up in these distinctions. So Ananda was being quite... Uh, uh, careful, and he was just going to go to the next few houses in a row, and whatever was there, he would just accept what that was. A lot, a little, good or bad. While he was walking by, uh, uh, 
he went by a uh, house of prostitution, and uh, it, uh, which was run by a woman called Matungi. And um, her daughter caught sight of Ananda. Now, Ananda was the Buddha's first cousin, and he looked almost just like the Buddha. He had beautiful skin, beautiful features, very handsome. And Matungi's daughter looked at uh, Ananda and just fell in love with him and just said, Mom, he's the one. And, <laughs> and she says, look, honey, <laughs> don't fool around with the Buddha's disciples. Look, he's committed to a, a life of celibacy. Just don't go there. And she says, Mom, if I don't have him, I'll die. I'll kill myself. And, and she says, you better do something or I'm going to die. And so she's thinking, oh, well, she has to do something. So she did have a special mantra that she chanted. She had some special mantra to try to help snare Ananda for her daughter. And so she chants and chants and chants this mantra. And, uh, and Ananda uh, gets sort of waylaid and sort of intoxicated and doesn't quite know what he's doing and ends up uh, getting drawn into the house and getting uh, drawn into her uh, uh, Matungi's daughter's bedroom and was just about to get in big trouble in terms of his vows. And meanwhile, the Buddha's receiving, eating his meal and seeing that this happening. So he ate his meal quickly and then got up and didn't give a Dhamma talk and just went back to the uh, monastery. And everyone's thinking, the Buddhist didn't give a Dhamma talk. Something's cooking. Something's going on. So everybody followed the Buddha back to the monastery. Meanwhile, the Buddha had already chanted this, what's called the Sharangama Mantra. He chanted the mantra, probably just to sort of keep things on hold. But then he got back, when, so when he got back to his mon monastery, he chanted this mantra, and then he sent, he needed a physical presence. He sent Manjushri, the king of wisdom, great bodhisattva of wisdom, he sent him, he said, go and see Ananda and, and uh, help break up this spell and, and bring Ananda and try to be nice, bring the girl back to and uh, encourage her to come back as well, Matungi's daughter. So uh, Manjushri goes chances the, the mantra, Ananda starts to kind of wake up, and we don't know quite exactly what Manjushri said to the girl, but she was going to kill herself if she didn't get Ananda. Anyway, somehow he's, he, Master Y says he probably said something like, look, you're very beautiful, uh, I'm sure we can work this out, uh, why don't we talk it over with the Buddha? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so they, they went back. Meanwhile, Nanda's starting to uh, wake up a bit. And then when he comes back into the assembly, back at the Jetta Monastery, he's not feeling so happy with himself. And uh, he bows to the Buddha and starts crying. And then, uh, so this whole Dharma assembly uh, was out of the Buddhist compassion to try to find a suitable means for Ananda to deepen his meditation and to become um, enlightened. 
And so um, the Buddha said there is a Sharangama Samadhi, a king of Samadhis, a durable Samadhi, an unshakable Samadhi. And that's what this uh, discourse was about. Um, but in wanting to choose a suitable uh, practice for Ananda, Ananda was foremost in study. He had memorized all the Buddha's teachings. He was a very diligent. He was a wonderful monk, but he put so much time on study that he still wasn't unshakable. That made him more subject to this spell, to this, to being caught up in things. And um, so in this uh, discourse, the Buddha invites 25 great bodhisattvas and great enlightened beings, great arahats, to each tell what their expedient means was, what was their entryway into the Dharma. And so it's an incredible teaching where you have each of these different sages comes and talks about the method they used. And in the course of all these methods, the Buddha said he was in, they all were great methods. But he said, let's try to pick, find the one that's most suitable for Ananda and is also suitable for beings that are going to be around after I'm gone in what's called the Dharma ending age, like the age that we're in. So they go th uh, through, some entered through mindfulness of the breath, some entered through uh, recitation of the Buddha's name, some entered through uh, uh, contemplation of different elements. Uh, the 25th, the last one that the Buddha invited was Kuan Yin. Number 25 was Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Kuan Yin then tells the story of how he first uh, awoke. How he first, what was the method that helped him enter into the true nature of things. And Kuan Yin told about receiving an instruction from a previous Buddha a long, long time ago called Kuan Yin, called Avalokiteshvara. And that particular method of entering, Kuan Yin describes it as a combination of hearing and reflecting. Hearing and reflecting. Or sometimes it's translated as returning the hearing. So after now we've heard 25 great sages all talk about their method, then the Buddha turns to Manjushri, the one who had just rescued Ananda, and said, Manjushri, now you choose which do you think is most suitable method for Ananda's faculties, for his nature? What's suitable for him and also will be the easiest method for people after I'm gone to enter in to the true Dharma? And then Manjushri um, um, chooses Kuan Yin's method and said that that was his own method. And Manjushri described it as listening to the sounds purely. Or Manjushri also described it as uh, Manjushri said to Ananda, you've been concentrated on learning to uphold the Buddha's uh, teaching. He says, why don't you listen to your own hearing? 
It's one thing when we listen and follow after sounds. In fact, he said that's what almost got him into trouble because he got beguiled by the sounds coming from Matangi and Matangi's daughter. Manjushi says, why don't you listen to your own hearing? What happens when hearing returns and is free of sound? What does one call that which is set free? We're usually grasping. Our knowing nature is usually grasping at objects. What happens when the hearing nature, the knowing nature, is set free from grasping? What remains? In other words, when a sound dissolves, what remains? This um, returning the hearing, this Avalokiteshvara's uh, method, which the Buddha himself then praised as the king of samadhis, as the uh, gateway through which all Buddhas became Buddhas. This, uh, this particular teaching then became the, the root of the, all the Zen, uh, Zen schools. Chan. And, and what is, is interesting is most samadhis, most of the other samadhis, rely on an external object, like the breath, for example, or even like the recitation of a name, even the most wonderful name. We've just come out of reciting Kuan Yin's name, or other people's recite the Buddha's name. But notice the the samadhi depends on the name, which is there and gone, there and gone. Or it depends on the breath, which is there, there's an in-breath, and then it's gone. Then there's an out-breath, and then it's gone. Why the normal gateways to samadhi are considered shakeable is because they rely on that which is transient. They rely on that which is uh, coming and going. In this particular uh, samadhi, one's turning the hearing back or turning the mind back to illumine the true nature itself. The mind is aware of the mind itself. This is not uh, a foreign, this is not totally foreign to what we've been uh, studying. And in fact, the, uh, the seed of it was in what we just did this past uh, week, building this wonderful foundation of virtue, of wholesomeness. We've been praising Kuan Yin's name, the one who listens to the sounds of the world. And in the name itself was the secret of this particular subtle uh, Dharma door. We've been holding the name and relying on the name, but remembering the name itself keeps reminding us that what it is that we're honoring and merging with is not the name itself. The name is reminding us, pointing us back to that which listens, at ease, contemplative ease. So in a sense, the name keeps dissolving the name is not the point. The name in and of itself isn't the point. The name is a signpost that reminds us that 
where we're going is back to the core, back to the listening. This teaching also uh, had its own antecedents in the classical Theravada scriptures. There was a great uh, uh, arahat, but before he became an arahat, his name was Anuruddha. He was known, uh, after he was enlightened, as the one with the most dazzling psychic powers of psychic vision. He could see into the threefold great, uh, the 10,000 worlds. Uh, he was actually physically blind. Uh, his physical eye was blind, but his inner vision was unsurpassed, his divine eye. Before he was enlightened, he was uh, still suffering. And so, uh, though he had uh, dazzling psychic powers, he went to the foremost uh, disciple of the Buddha called Shariputra for help. Shariputra didn't have psychic powers, but he was foremost in meditation. He was foremost in wisdom. So he went to Sariputra and said, Sariputra, my divine eye is unsurpassed in the Sangha. I see all the 10,000 worlds. My mindfulness is unremitting. I don't waver. My mindfulness does not waver. I'm with everything I'm doing, I'm doing it. My body is at ease. But I'm still suffering. He said, I'm still uh, subject to what's called the outflows. I'm still suffering. And then uh, it is said, uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but it said something like that Sariputra said, well, you uh, thought that you were unsurpassed with the divine eye is conceit. You're, uh, that your mindfulness is unremitting and unwavering is connected to your restlessness. that you always have to be doing something, doing something, doing something, caught up in all the complexities of life. And your sense that you're still suffering is tied up with your anxiety. And Sariputra said to, rather than being concerned with all this, turn your mind to the deathless. It's a very important principle. Turn your mind to the deathless. In other words, turn your mind directly to that which doesn't die. So it sounds like a bit harsh speech, you know. What's he saying that uh, your that your divine eyes unsurpassed is connected to your conceit? But anyway, Anuruddha took the instruction and went off and studied. But there's an important principle here, this principle of, of he was so outwardly focused on all the incredible spirits he could see, the worlds he could see, what's happening over here, what's happening over there. He was very focused on being mindful, which is wonderful, but he was still focused on objects, on the body as a reality, on this as a reality. He was, he was there. 
but the qual quality of uh, mindfulness and effort it's connected with restlessness because it was always the sense of getting on and doing the next thing. It's still outwardly focused. He said, rather than being so caught up with all that complexity, this is about proliferation. Sariputra said, turn your mind to the deathless. That's what the Shrangama Samadhi is. It's turning your mind to the deathless, directly to the deathless. So we've been doing all this uh, uh, wonderful foundation. It's not that those practices that Anuruddha were doing were bad. Mindfulness is really good. Holding Kuan Yin's name is really good. But still... To turn your mind to the deathless means to look back and see, but who's doing all this? In Anuruddha's case, there still was the sense that I have the divine eye. Still was a possession. Still was the sense that I am the most mindful. It still was the sense that I am still suffering. If we return the hearing... Return the knowing nature to shine the light back and question who is being mindful? Who is still suffering? Who has been mindful of Kuan Yin? Who's been holding Kuan Yin's name? And then an answer might come. The answer might come, well, it's me, Dumbo. And we hear that welling up, it's me, Dumbo, but that's an imposter, isn't it? It seems like me, it's me, Dumbo, wells up, but that is a Nietzsche, it dissolves again. It's me, wells up and dissolves. So we're shining the mind back and pondering. In this great Shrangama teaching, the, the, the Buddha says when we don't understand two fundamental roots, we end up wandering in samsara endlessly. And we end up thinking we're getting somewhere, but he said it's like cooking, I told you this before, it's like cooking sand hoping to get delicacies. We're looking in the wrong place. If you're cooking sand hoping to get some delicious food, you're in the wrong... Sand doesn't turn into delicious food. And the two fundamental roots is, is not understanding the root of birth and death. It grasps after conditions. If we keep grasping after conditions, hoping that's going to lead to nibbana, to peace, that's what it never can, it, never, it can't happen. So no matter how refined the samadhi gets, how refined we get to the energies of the body, how refined our vision gets till we see more and more subtle sights and sounds, that still the nature of those conditions is unstable. The root of endless birth and death is these conditions which we take to be self. The other fundamental root that the Buddha said we don't understand is our own pure mind. The Buddha 
called it this in this teaching. He said, again, I'll repeat the first one, not understanding the two roots. The first is the beginningless birth and death, which comes from the mind seizing upon conditions. The second is this pure, primal, pure substance of beginningless, awakened Nibbana. It's the primal, bright essence of consciousness that brings forth all conditions. The true mind, the true heart. Having lost our true nature, it's still there, but having lost sight of our true nature, the Buddha said, you recognize objects as yourself. Like Anuruddha, recognizing himself as the mindful one, the object of being with the body mindfully, the one who could see all the subtle sights of the universe. Having lost sight of our true nature, we conduct ourselves in upside-down ways, the Buddha said, recognizing objects as ourself. And in doing that, we cling to the flowing and turning of the endlessly revolving wheel of samsara. So in turning the mind to the deathless, That means rather than is recognizing the empty, changing nature of conditions and turning the mind right back to what doesn't change, what doesn't die. Outwardly, whenever the mind goes out, all that we hit is a condition. When we go out to sound, we hit the rain sounds. The drops touching, 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 coming, going. When we direct the mind to sight, we can look at the candles, but we notice the candles are flickering and changing, the flowers are changing, the weather is changing. Directing it to the body, out to forms, the pulsing of the heart, it's ephemeral, it's changing, it's dukkha, it's unreliable, it's anatta, it's not self. It's shunyata, it's empty of solidity. So in seeing that, what happens if one turns the attention back and asks the question, but who's listening? Who's being mindful of change? This technique of returning the hearing is called Kuan Yin's method. Turning the mind to the deathless is called Kuan Yin's method. A gateway to this method that the saints and sages have used is the remembering Condogno's image of the host and the guest. The innkeeper, in other words. The guest doesn't remain. The guest comes and goes. The host has nowhere else to go. The host is at home.
or the image of the sun beam coming in the window revealing the billions of dancing dust particles. The dust particles move. The space itself remains still. The moving dust particles are like the, are like the sounds changing, the feelings changing, the thoughts changing, the stillness of the space revealed by the light of the sun is like the mind, the undying mind, the deathless mind. The guests are like the thoughts that come and go. The host is like what remains, the heart space, the primal bright essence of consciousness, the undying source that the Buddha was talking about. The ancient expedient that we use is asking a question. It's, it's, the Chinese call it the hua to. They call it a word, hua to, the head of a word. Or the hua to is a word which, remi which, which reminds you of where did this word come from. Hua to means what comes before the word. The to means that which came before. So when the word is there, Imagine a word that's reminding you of where did this just come from. Well, Kuan Yin's name does that. Kuan Yin's name says the one who listens. So the name is called the tail of the word, but it points you back to the listening, to the source or to the head or to that which came before the thought. So rather than using a mantra where we keep using a mantra, keep using a mantra to steady the mind, the, the, the Chan practice that we're doing is turning the mind to the deathless, but we will occasionally use a word, and mainly a question, that points the mind back, returns the mind back to the source, returning to listen in to the deathless. The question who is one very powerful one. We don't need to, to get upset by thought, but if thought is happening, we then just gently question who is caught up in thought. And notice when you ask the question who, for a moment there's a pause. There's a gap in the thought and a doubt. That doubt is not divorced from inquiry. That devout doubt is useful because it's a looking, a gazing, there's a vigilance there. It's not a hindrance. It's associated with looking again. Listening to the sounds purely. There's the sound of the rain, which is like the moving and changing. And what's not moving?
Visrangama Samadhi is tied up with our relationship to thought. It's papancha, conceptual proliferation, that keeps us all outwardly focused on the good days, or when's the weather going to change so that I can really practice, or, or oh, I can't practice today because of my back, or, oh no, this is a really good meditation. Notice all these complexities are f- propped up by our thinking. In this practicing, in this practice, we're learning to, uh, a gateway into it is learning to see that thoughts themselves are impermanent. So we're using one thought, not as a mantra this time, but as a thought that keeps like a sword, it's called a Vajra sword, cutting through all thoughts. No matter what the thought is happening, we can just ask the question, who's thinking that? And then allowing ourselves to notice the gap after the thought and the gap right before the thought. That place from where the thought comes and then the thought dissolves right back into that unnameable place. So the, the skill in this practice is, is patience again, is kindliness again. But in learning to allow thoughts to end and to notice the gaps between the thoughts, the gaps and spaces around the thoughts. So it's not that we don't notice the dust dancing in the sunlight. It's not that we ignore the guests that are coming and going but we're also allowing ourselves to notice that which remains. A great huato, or or a huato is the the name for this technique, or, or a word that points us back to the source, is what remains. Just notice when that thought touches consciousness and then dissolves. We're thinking the thought, And then we consciously let the thought die, but because it's a question, it takes us right back, turning the light back. What remains? Cultivating the capacity to be with the silence after the thought. Learning not to rely on thought. If it's too strong a doubt, we're getting a headache, then we can use a huato just as let go. Let go is also a thought, but it's a thought that dissolves and takes us right back to that which just knows, not clinging. Notice let go is a calming huato. Let go. If we're getting dull, who brightens it up? Who's tired? So it it helps the mind not get preoccupied with objects by asking a question, letting that question dissolve and take us back to that source.
If you ever get lost and feel confused and we still have the breath, the name, the sacred name, stabilize ourselves, and then just notice, ah, what are the guests here? What's moving? And ask the question, what remains? Who's striving? A really powerful question is, who's not enlightened? Who's not enlightened? Oh, I am, uh, because uh, listen to that. Who's not enlightened? It's me. I'm not because... Listen to those voices. It's not that you deny those voices, but are those voices me? So the who just lets us go, hmm, let's just ponder. Kuan Yin ponders, contemplates. Who? Who gets enlightened? Oh, I do. I'll get enlightened when? When I can do this and I can do that. Listening to those voices as like dust, empty. So our tools are who, what. Words that aren't, we're not hammering the mind with these words. We're letting a word dissolve and take us back to the deathless, that which never dies. It's subtle practice, but it's, the, it's considered uh, the core of the practice. So we're not hammering ourselves with who, 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 who. As the sages say, if you're going to use a mantra, you might as well just use Kuan Yin or Amitabha Buddha or Buddha. So use it sparingly. You don't hammer ourselves with it, but it's like dropping a little question in from time to time. Who's suffering? And let the question dissolve. Notice the ending of the question. Notice that gap, even if it's momentary. And kindly, patiently, with all that we've been working with, be with that gap. And then if there's another swirl of feeling, sensation and stuff, that's all right. If who is too strong, then just let be. Is a, is a word, a phrase that's there, and then it just dissolves, reminding us to let the guests be the guests, to start to get a feeling for the space around the guests, the place actually which is our primal home, our original home, what Ajahn Chah occasionally called the original heart. It's called the Shurangama Samadhi because what our object is, we're not taking a normal object which is conditioned. 
This is called the dura, ultimately durable samadhi because it's taking nibbana itself. It's taking the deathless itself. It's taking the heart itself as the focus. <laughs>